Hello. Welcome to Electrocast. Episode 7, Nuts, with Michael Reed, released May 2021. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of Electrocast. Today we have Michael Reed. He's an electronic engineer currently in China. Um, yeah, he's the founder of Linefox and was previously the co-founder of Cartesian Co. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thank you very much for bringing me on, James. No, thanks for thanks for coming on. So, would you want to tell us a little bit about Linefox, the current project? Sure. So, Linefox is this company that I've set up uh, with a friend of mine. It's still very young, so it's still very early stages in developing a bunch of stuff. Um, but the ultimate goal that we're hoping to, in the not so distant future, get to is essentially a service that helps engineers, in particular, like development engineers, set up test systems for both development and manufacturing without having to learn the whole new ecosphere of like design testing. So the sort of like classic example is if you make a product, you get it up to like some kind of stage where you know you've done some semblance of design for manufacturing and all those kinds of things. There's still a whole bunch of systems you have to set up to make sure that manufacturing runs smoothly. One of the most complicated which is like testing. So that might be test fixtures, but then it also accounts for things like um, data systems for storing all of your test data, things for like passing just configuration information to and from things. Or even something simple like just changing the firmware that you want to be flashing onto your devices on, on the line. So a bunch of automation tools to make it very easy for someone that has designed a product to then um, specify and pump out all of those systems as a well. whole. I see. So you're um, designing tools to help the testing process once you've produced something? Or is it the, during the manufacture, like mass scale production? or? So where the, the people that we're targeting at the moment, like the clients that we have now, are people mm. that are sort of like fairly small, fairly small scale manufacturing, but already manufacturing. And that's okay. just because they have sort of like systems that are a little bit less complicated um, to dive into, which so just means that like myself as a single engineer can usually take on the whole project. Um, but eventually we're hoping to develop the system to be something that you can incorporate into like your continuous integration, continuous development sort of like pipeline. So the idea being, so I, I guess like an example would probably illustrate this best. So you're designing a new just like PCB. Um, yep. You're going to have to sort of like flash it with some firmware. Maybe you also want to set up some just like um, standard firmware tests. So like you're writing to EEPROM, you're like connecting to Wi-Fi, and you want to validate that every time you make a change to your firmware that all that works. Yeah. So if you're making a really small PCB, the first problem you have is in order to connect everything on it to like perform these um, you know, flashing functions, things like that, you might not have space for the kind of plug that you want to have permanently put onto the PCB. So a classic way around this is to have a little like test fixture, which is like what all these things um, behind me are doing, all of these are for manufacturing. Oh, so a bed of nails if kind you of get, things. Yeah, yeah, bed of nails things. Um, so if, if you have one of those made, you just like put it in, you press down the clamp, and then you have all the connections that you need in order to communicate um, with it to, to do these things. Um, okay. So the first tool that we're hoping to deploy really soon is a online design tool where you upload your Gerber files and possibly other some just like pick and place files and sorry, pick and place specifications, CSVs. And from that, it'll automatically generate out the mechanical design of a bed of nails on test fixture like that. So you can like instant order it um, as well. So then once that sort of like arrives and you have like a bed of nails things that you can like connect to everything, um, you probably want to have uh, less so in development, but once you get into sort of production style things, you want to be able to record all the information that comes out of it. You might have to like specify some specific, uh, just like electronics modules that might do things like battery emulation to test like a battery charge that you have on board and mm. all those kinds of things. But the ultimate intention is, is to be that um, once you push a change to your board, um, 
maybe in like a Git repo or something like that, you can get it to automatically update all of these specifications for either your development um, sort of like jig or system, or also your production test fixture system. So it's keeping it all encapsulated. So then when you update one bit, it updates the whole thing. So you don't need to go through run different yeah. procedures. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, like, ultimately it doesn't have to be that way because I know there's there's going to be a lot of engineers that aren't really into the whole continuous development um, sort of like cycle system because that's generally like a real software approach. Um, so we're making it also so that you can set all this up manually, um, but you'll have the tools to kind of just like, you know, click some buttons to, to configure things. But yeah. if you are that way inclined and you prefer to have everything sort of just like automatically uh, specified like that, it will be um, able to go through that as well. So you just like link it up with your GitLab repo or whatever. Yeah, and it's continuously linked. No, that's cool. That is cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so where's the idea of this the oh, Linefox come from? So why why are you going into testing? Why is that your area? Like what, what intrigues you about testing? So it, it pretty much started because I so I used to work at Hacks, um, which is this hardware accelerator um, that's based in Shenzhen. Mm -hmm. The idea is that there's a whole bunch of startups that um, would usually have gone through creation of an initial sort of like um, proof of concepts or they'll have like an initial prototype. And they need a little bit of funding and then a bunch of help in terms of developing things and then also setting things up for manufacturing. And so I worked as a mechatronics engineering lead there. And so I helped a whole bunch of teams mainly take that sort of like first proof of concept, do a bunch of DFM, do a bunch of like design for testing stuff as well. And then for several companies, I helped them set up this testing system. Hmm. And me, along with a couple of the other pretty clever people in some of the startups, realized quickly that the setup to make these testing systems took tons of engineering time. Um, often the things like the, the components that you would want to use that are like standard off the shelf are only made by like natural instruments or like Keithley or something like that. And so even if you have a fairly simple thing that you want to test, the only standard way to do it is to purchase a device that might cost like $10,000 or something like that, which is kind of just That's ridiculous. Nice. And so some people started sort of like designing their own electronics modules to like, you know, do simpler versions and obviously like, not the same level of fidelity, but you don't need the same level of fidelity in a lot of instances. Yeah. But then also like the software to develop like the definitions of the test procedures to like set up ways to you know really quickly flash things so that you don't slow down the line to do things like storing all of the results of your tests up in databases. It, it just took tons of time. It ended up being really expensive from just like a, like uh, I guess just man hours perspective. Right. And um, the, the worst part about it was that everyone seemed to be doing more or less the same thing, just slightly differently, depending on their personal preferences. And so like every single person you saw making an IoT device was like, yeah, I need to do sort of like a power up test where I'd like validate that um, you know, it's not taking too much current on startup. I need to validate that like the sleep current isn't too high. I need to like connect to Wi-Fi and validate that you know, I can get like the right um, data throughput. Mm. And so everybody was writing their own versions of this and we were like, why don't we just start doing this sort of like connected together in a way that you know, can be commoditized across a whole bunch of people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so originally I started this, so like I had this idea with a couple of um, people that I knew uh, in a sort of like hacks sphere. And then I actually went to manage a new office that hacks set up in Xi'an. And so while we were there, we like took on a bunch of local Chinese, um, just like startup companies. Mm -hmm. And one of them was two really smart guys that didn't really know what they wanted to do. They had this like one idea they wanted to roll with that was a really bad idea. And so I gave them the suggestion of like, you know, setting up standardized test fixturing systems. And um, I was like really excited for someone to like finally do it properly. And unfortunately, those guys had like a really bad fallout and like the whole company fell apart and it ended up going anywhere. So then like a year after that, I was like, 
kind of just like wanting to, to go into something new and like leave my job at Hacks. And so I had to chat to my friend with this like idea that previously had you know, sort of tried out with, through this other company. And yeah, we decided to do it. So long story short, it's a problem that like tons of people seem to have. We kind of understand it and it totally makes sense to commoditize it. Mm -hmm. um, so we're trying it out, see how it goes. <laughs> no, that's a good idea. It's a good idea. It seems like something that everyone has the problem, but no one wants to do anything about it. They just do their own way just to fix it and then that's it. But it... Yeah, I mean, like the, the bad thing as well is that it often ends out where people spend tons of time on it, but then they'll still come up with something that's not what they want. It'll be like subpar. It like that they'll hit a deadline with manufacturing is always the thing, and they'll be like, "I need to have units coming out next week," and so mm -hmm. they'll just trash like eighty percent of their feature sets, and just be like, "As long as I'm pretty confident it works, we're gonna ship it." Um, so yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, so did did you use the accelerator yourself then first starting Linefox or? Uh, no, so mainly just because one of the, the big benefits that the Hacks provides is like the connections and like understanding of the, the Shenzhen ecosphere. And so right now we're not looking for funding yet because we've got a couple of um, grants, what um, one from the Hong Kong government, HKSDP program. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not going to go through an accelerator program just yet. Um, we're still like chatting some about in the future if um, investment sort of like pathways make sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, not yet. Just because it's, it's really early days. We, we've kind of been, I mean, we've been officially operating for like two months, okay. um, but we've kind of been like working on stuff tangentially because I was doing some like personal, I was, I was doing some consulting work for a couple of companies doing this for like the last like six months or something like that. Okay. There's no overlap there though, is there? Like if you decided to start this as like your own idea, but could you have done consulting? Is there any kind of crossover there where you've got to be careful or? Well, so it's we, we when I started doing consulting work was essentially I understood how to set up these testing systems for people, mm -hmm. and the issue in well for smaller companies at the moment that we're manufacturing in China is that it's extremely difficult to send non-local residents in, into the Chinese mainland right now just because of restrictions because of COVID, cool. and so I knew a whole bunch of friends of mine that used to that I knew through the Hacks program that didn't have the ability to come and do some work and check up on some things on their lines. And so a whole bunch of them reached out to me saying like, hey, we need to set up these like testing systems and we don't have the ability at all to do the on the ground stuff. And so I did some consulting work on doing that and like helping them set up some things. But like luckily I'm, I'm just like good friends with most of those guys. And what, what I was doing is for my own sort of just like personal consulting business at the time, developing a couple of tools to make the process of setting this up for people as clients um, a lot quicker and easier so that I could sort of just like eventually swap over from doing things on like an hourly basis to like a project by project basis right. where if I had enough like, you know, efficiency tools set up for myself, I could just, you know, make a lot more money by doing that. And then eventually I just like had to chat to my friend and I was like, you know, maybe this makes sense to do properly as a business rather than just, you know, one dude doing some consulting. Um, but then also in, in the meantime, we are taking on some clients to essentially set up testing systems as a sort of like contracting kind of um, arrangement. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is that we want to validate the tools we're putting together that will eventually just be like handing off for people to use themselves are very effective in solving the problems that they're doing and just making sure that we like learn as much as we can directly um, from the customers. But in that case, like what we're doing is we're usually like spending up, well, I'm spending a whole bunch of time developing tools and then a small amount of time just adapting the outputs of those tools to what the individual company needs at that time. And that section is the hours that we're building for at the moment. Um, so it kind of works out pretty well for, for everyone involved because they essentially get, I guess, just cheaper than you would otherwise development for these testing systems because I've already done most of the work in these automation tools. 
Um, and then eventually we're hoping to sort of, you know, move up another layer and then just be able to not deal by things on a you know, project by project basis ourselves, let the original engineers do that. Oh, I see. So it's like kind of free testing, even though it's not like you, they're still getting the service, but you're testing what you've got so far so you can build up from there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I mean, like, we, we don't want to spend six months putting something together and then like hand it out to people and they're like, yeah, this is like cool, but it doesn't solve this problem, which is my main actual problem. Yeah. So yeah, well, we're kind of just validating that. I mean, because for example, if people are paying us money to develop these testing systems, we know how much they're like, you know, happy to pay, how much they're not happy to pay, the sort of like timelines they're expecting things to come through on and things like that. And if we can replace that consulting system with a tool that they can sort of like interact with themselves, that's what we want to get to. So we want to just like find people that would otherwise look for consulting and instead be like, oh, you know what, I can just do this myself with these automated tools. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Also saves them a lot of money and it, you've got the tool there. So it's win-win really, doesn't it? Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. And I mean, like th th these people I'm working with, they, they unfortunately literally have no method of solving the problems that they have at the moment just because of the COVID situation. So, yeah. I mean, honestly, they're generally just quite happy that they, they have someone that they know well that can handle these problems. Okay. So do you think it'll be different when COVID not goes away, but when all restrictions like reduce? The things will definitely be different, but the kind of like way that people will interact with international travel will still be pretty heavily affected, I would say. And so that's part of the reason why we decided that it was going to be a good idea. And so one of the kind of like main tenets of what we're hoping to get to from the production perspective of like the LineFox system is that you can keep really good tabs on the status of your production line and the methods and procedures that are being used in assembly of your products without having to go there you know, once every three months. Because I know right. a whole bunch of people that just regularly send engineers over here to like validate things, like check the way the procedures are being done, things like that. And if you could do that while staying in you know, your home country, it would save tons of effort and time regardless of the COVID situation. And now because of COVID, tons of people don't want to go, can't afford to go, or just you know, aren't able to get through borders and things like that. So yeah. it'll it'll change a little bit, but it'll I think it'll last for a long time and it'll just slowly tail off to be slightly less important. No, that's true. And then you've been a consultant anyway, so you're a, like you've been through that whole process up until this point, haven't you? Being like restricted travel yeah. and yeah. No, that's cool. How did you get into consulting then? Um I just quite like I can see the link from like Linefox from consultant to Linefox, but how did you get to consulting in the first place? So I mean that was pretty much just coming out from hacks. I decided that I wanted to do something a little bit different, just like the pathway that I found going through there wasn't wasn't quite what I wanted to do. So I wanted to just do something a little bit by myself, pick the kind of just you know projects that I was working on, the people that I was working with. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, it was it was kind of just like a bridging thing. Um, I I kind of had the idea of developing this whole like testing thing into a business of some sort, um, but I didn't really know that the right method that was going to make sense. Whether it was just going to be like me doing consulting work and being based somewhere, or whether it was going to be me developing out the system that I tried to sell, you know, funding methods. And so I kind of just left my job and I was like, I know that I want to do something around testing. I know that I have a bunch of experience there. And at the time, I also knew a bunch of these sort of like companies that needed someone on the ground to perform these things. Right. And so I kind of just like naturally fit in that like, I want to do something different. I knew I wanted to do something around testing and the intermediate sort of just like method of learning about whether or not it made sense and, you know, just getting involved in it without having too much personal, I guess, investment into the process was starting with consulting. Okay, I see, I see. And was that through people you knew, or did you just go straight into consulting? I was just that seems like the next good step. Well, it so like it it happens mainly just because I had all these you know really good contacts from people from hacks. 
So oh, really? a lot of the people that I worked with in those first few months were people that I had worked with previously. And so the benefit from that is I, I knew like a whole ton of people and they already like knew my work and knew me personally. So they all trusted me a lot, knew that I was going to do things pretty well. So yeah, it was, it was, it was honestly pretty easy, mainly through the reason that I had a bunch of good contacts. Oh, I see. That's, it's good that you came from somewhere like that. So if you like weren't in a position where you've been working with so many people, like that transition might've been hmm. much more difficult. Like how did you go to working in hacks? Like that's like a really useful point for you there where you've like your career stemmed from really hmm. over in, in China. But like were you in China a long time before that or like were you actively looking for something like networking wise or? Yeah, so the, the, the story of like how I started working with hacks um, is pretty much that out of university, I, I mean, I guess, I guess how, how deep you want to get it. But long story short, I, I started a, uh, I joined a startup company straight out of university, mm -hmm. which is a bunch of my friends that I knew um, from, from university. And um, I was kind of like the first hire that wasn't the original three co-founders. And that, that was a company called Cartesian Co. And so they were making this kind of desktop um, PCB printing device. And so it used like an inkjet um, style technology stuff to jet out silver nitrate and ascorbic acid. And the idea is they would mix and they would precipitate silver. And so you could like print silver traces and make rapid prototype PCBs like that. Mm. Um, so I joined them. I worked with them for kind of like a year. And then we realized that we had absolutely no idea what we were doing in terms of actual production and sort of like design for manufacture and things like that. Because um, we were just doing everything in Brisbane in Australia, mm. which if you don't really know much about Australia or Brisbane, it's not a great place to manufacture hardware. I guess it's a long story short, um, but we just lived there. So, you know, it was expensive, slow. There was just, there's literally no reason to assemble or like make hardware in, in Brisbane. It's right. also like, there's not a lot of talent that's like specific to that kind of problem. Like there's plenty of smart people, but like if you want to manufacture parts, it's just, there's no infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so anyway. We decided um, we needed to, you know, pull our heads in and go do this thing kind of like seriously. So half, well, most of the company um, split off to go to New York um, because we were accepted into the Techstars Accelerator there, cool. um, which was good and bad. I, I think it honestly didn't fit us too well long term, but you know, it was at the time investment money that we needed and we were young and dumb and thought that was a great thing. Um, and then me and one other engineer went to Shenzhen. And so the intention was that we already had a product that we'd shipped um, like one, maybe two batches of, hmm. um, but you know, fairly small batches. Yeah, yeah. And so we went to, to Shenzhen to kind of like redesign the, the whole device to, to make it more easily manufacturable, get connected like really personally with these manufacturers to make sure that we were making those design changes correctly and that we were manufacturing sort of like economically and that we could scale it up to you know have production times go down, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, of course. So I was then in Shenzhen for like a year uh, with them. And long story short, we, we made a whole bunch of bad decisions kind of just like as a collective group. And after a year there, I decided that it was time to move on and do something different because things probably weren't going to, you know, keep, keep, keep going up. Mm. Um, so I left and I was left in Shenzhen at that point, just being like, what do I do now? I like sort of you know, moved my whole life over here and I've been here for a year. And so it, I was kind of just tossing up between going to the States and trying to just like find a random job there, going back to Brisbane and just sort out what I was doing back, back into my hometown or staying in Shenzhen and trying to use the experience that I already had to build up some more experience to then, you know, get into something cool. Yeah. So I decided obviously on the, on the latter one and I looked around for some jobs and I found this other hardware startup company called Living Farms, um, which is this Austrian based startup um, that was originally founded by these um, two Austrian girls. And they were making this device that I won't bother explaining too much, but it, it was a hive for growing mealworms for eating um, as like a, 
healthy and you know, e environmentally conscious protein alternative. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> I, I started doing some, some electric electronics engineering work for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was doing that, they were in the hacks, um, acceleration program. And so from that, I, I met the sort of program director at the time and he offered me a job as mechatronics engineering lead and it kind of just transitioned into there. So it, it was kind of like, I, I fell into that job uh, more or less, mainly just because I was, um, right place, right an time. engineer. Yeah. In Shenzhen at the time. And, um, it worked out really well. I definitely enjoyed like being like the really good thing about working at hacks was that I could work with a whole broad range of all kinds of different um, products and all kinds of different people from all around the world as well. I just got experience at like all kinds of different stages of like, you know, initial product development. I learned about just like, you know, getting certifications for uh, medical devices and then just, you know, testing systems, for example. And that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. No, that makes sense. Like that's a pretty, like not easy, but it's a pretty solid through like A to B kind of trip. I know, I know you were looking for jobs and you could have gone anywhere, but like it's it's good how it's like planned out for you if you know i mean it it's it seems like that in retrospect yeah it seems like <laughs> I planned it, but it was it was honestly yeah it was kind of just at the time i tried to make decisions that i thought would be interesting um and just you know wouldn't keep me too bored and you know at least let me pay rent and things like that and yeah. that's how i ended up here all right so you've, you've worked quite a bit yeah, there, it wasn't it wasn't wasn't planned out well <laughs> it wasn't planned <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah but yeah, so you love you love like quite a bit of the manufacturing and production kind of stuff. So especially over being over in um, Shenzhen, mm -hmm. what sort of careers were you like aiming towards when you're over there? Because you went over there for production to figure out how to produce your printer. Like, what sort of yeah. people were you mingling with there? So I mean, while I was working with Shenzhen, uh, sorry, while I was working with Cartesian Co. When I first came here, I was mainly just talking to like suppliers that we were personally working with, mm. and so I made like a whole bunch of connections with. Um, yeah, just, just people like manufacturing, but in particular, like small manufacturers, small. because we were really small and like inexperienced um, startup companies. So we couldn't afford, nor did we have like production volumes to have anyone large and interested. Yeah. Um, so it was good to just kind of get connected with the um, you know, niche um, kind of like smaller manufacturing space, which is something that only really exists in a place like Guangdong, which is the like province that, that Shenzhen's in. Okay. And, um, so then after that, when I worked for Hacks, it was pretty good. I kind of got connected to people from like all aspects of, you know, I, I still have connections to people from a whole bunch of like supply chain companies, you know, manufacturers for you know, anything like plastic parts, specifically like medical components, mm -hmm. electronics things. I know like certifications people, but I, I guess in, in that interim period where I was deciding whether I wanted to stay in Shenzhen or not, the kind of jobs I was looking for was honestly just like I, I farmed around looking for interesting things that were in Shenzhen that were vaguely correlated to my background, which was mechatronics engineering. Yep. And the main reason that I ended up working for Living Farms rather than looking for some kind of like corporation um, was just that most of the jobs that I saw for foreigners at that time, at least, and it has changed quite a lot because that was you know, four and a half years ago or something. Right, right. Um, they weren't super interesting. So, well, so, some of them were fairly interesting, but it was either really boring, just like not fascinating job at all, just because like you wanted to be in Shenzhen or something like that. And so mm. I, I guess that's the, the, the sort of person they were targeting. And then the opposite was they wanted someone to like manage a whole office. So they wanted someone to just like take on managing like, you know, a whole company's like wing of a production line or something like that. Um, so the one like engineering, like top level managers. Right. Um, 
because it was essentially like th those were usually companies like overseas companies that had set up some sort of permanent um uh, contingent like within yeah. um yeah or like it, you know maybe that they've um, taken over a small section of a manufacturer that they work for because often you'll have like semi-permanent you know manufacturing lines dedicated to individual products oh. and um so I mean, looks sure. at the time, some of those positions were kind of interesting, and I did like apply for a few of them. But at the time, I just did not have nearly enough experience. Yeah. Um, so I did end up going with those, and um, I, I think out of all the decisions that could have happened, like ending up at Hacks was definitely the thing that got me the most experience, um, and it was also really fun. Um, just yeah, meeting a whole bunch of new people. So I, I think I got quite lucky in in, the, in that thing, and I'm, I'm happy now that I'm moving on from there to do some interesting things with all the, the things that I received from that job. No, that's good. It's good that you're happy with like that as a step, because you could have landed somewhere and it had been dead end, and then you're not happy. Um, you know, 100%. Like... I mean, I know plenty of people that burn out in jobs they take in China as well, so I got pretty lucky. Would you say that the work is, you like just before the call here, you mentioned that the, the bank holidays are along there, and then the, the work mm. to like the working time to free time ratio is a bit different. But how, how different is it to um, like early on? So like when you're in university or whatever, is it significantly different, the, the work-life balance? I mean, it, it's hard to say because I always have weird perspectives on work-life balance because I do really enjoy some of the things that I do. Hmm. So like depending on the perspective you look at it, some might think that I work way too much. Um, some might be like really positive, like they might think it's really positive that I really enjoy the work that I do. So I kind of bounce a little bit in between the two of those. Hmm. Um, when I was in university, for example, I worked like way too hard and I was like far too obsessed with getting my grades up higher, um, which was bad <laughs> in retrospect. I don't think I really gained any benefit from it. Um, other than the fact that I, I guess I just, you know, maybe it got me used to enjoying doing hard work and challenging things, I guess. Hmm. Um, but then, so like when I was working for Hacks, that was always kind of like pumping at 110%. Because um, it was just like, startup companies are always strapped for cash and time and everything. And we were working with like, you know, 15 or 20 at a time. Right. And so it was, it was just constantly like emergencies of like people needing stuff yesterday. Um, so so that, that was definitely really intense for the most part. Um, and like, it, it, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't like a sustainable sort of like position for me. I think it wasn't something I could keep up forever. Um, but it was it was really beneficial because like, I, I still enjoyed most of the stuff that I was doing. There was obviously some things that I had to sort of like take on and the responsibilities that you know if if I had to pick what I was doing on a you sort of like you know, Saturday morning wouldn't have been that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, most of it was like you know it, it it's the kind of thing that I'd be doing in my free time even if I wasn't getting paid to do it. Um, so yeah, I I I'm not the right person to ask for perspectives on sort of like work life balance things. I think just because I have a skewed perspective on it in a couple of different ways. Um, but I'm happy at the moment, so. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair enough. Like everyone's got their own like view on it, haven't they? I don't suppose it's the right way of doing it. Just, yeah. 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 I, mean, I guess like a, a good a good opposing perspective to it is that my my girlfriend um, works for the Microsoft Shenzhen office, um, mm -hmm. and she has like a fairly relaxed work lifestyle. So she doesn't have like really busy hours. Um, her boss is really great, so he's like really flexible in terms of like, oh, like if you want to you know, work from home. I mean, especially after the whole COVID thing, well, um, they're like very okay with that. Hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, like it, it's great from that perspective in that she gets a whole bunch of free time to work on things that she's really interested in. So she like wants, to, so she's like she's been um, 
getting some certifications in Spanish, for example. And so she spends a lot of time practicing her Spanish and learning that kind of stuff. And um, the flip side to it is that the work that she does at the moment, at least, she doesn't find very interesting. So for um, her, like, yeah, it, it, you know, you, you make a trade-off one way or the other, usually at some point. Sometimes you might get really lucky and you get like you know, really casual hours in something that you really love. Hmm. But that, I think that's the sweet spot that is like almost impossible to find. Um, suppose having and like, I mean, if you really enjoy your stuff, mm. well, yeah, I mean, like, because that's the thing is like, if you really enjoy it that much, you'll probably end up doing longer hours anyway, because like, yeah, so I don't know, it's, I guess there's just two ends of the spectrum. I'm on one end of the spectrum. And at the moment, my girlfriend's on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Well, that doesn't leave you much time to do your own projects or anything, then no. I suppose it is your own project. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. It's like to find my own projects because like it's now my company is my own project. Um, so yeah, I mean there are definitely some like casual stupid projects that I haven't been able to spend any time to work on for a little while. Um, but yeah, I still enjoy what I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm learning new fun things and it would be similar things that I'd be working on if I had an unlimited amount of free time as well. Right, right, right. And the being in China, like in terms of metal manufacturing things being there, like that's, that's where... Um anyone i know buys all that cheap stuff from like especially electronics wise it always comes in the yeah. same like bag from from the, all the same regions of china um yeah that, i mean that's pretty much like exactly why we came to shenzhen in the first place with cartesian Co. we didn't really know that much about shenzhen we just knew that out of all of the parts that we were sourcing for like a printer and shipping to, to brisbane to then ultimately ship to other parts of the world hmm. like 90% of it came from Shenzhen or something, or like Guangdong, so like the surrounding areas. And so we were like, that probably makes sense as a good place to start then. And that's, yeah. that's why we came here. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely, it makes a huge difference in how you can approach um, just like projects in general, like development projects in general, um, which is, is also really nice for like fun side projects. But like the classic thing is I have a, a friend of mine who actually um, I hired on for the Haxian team. And then she left to go do some postgrad studies in Switzerland. And so she's a very clever engineer um, and she's working on a bunch of just like projects for like consulting work. She's doing startups over there. And she, every time I talk to her, is incredibly frustrated by the difficulty in like logistics, cost, and timeframes for ordering PCBs, components, assembly, anything yeah. in particular from Switzerland. And it's, it's like this, this point at which you could order things from China, but then the time frame in order to get them, you know, makes it frustrating enough that you don't want to do it. Or you could order it locally, and then the cost frame means that like you really want to like nail down your your designs like a hundred percent and like verify everything five times before you make the order. Yeah. Whereas in, in Shenzhen, I literally have a script set up now so that once I hit like push um, one of my projects, it automatically opens up the sort of like JLC, which is a PCB ordering service. Mm -hmm. So like just hit three buttons and order it. Because it'll usually cost less than you know like three dollars fifty. So I just I, I I do like automated checks. Um, so like I have a bunch of like code that I have written up to do automated on, like uh, God I can't think of the acronym now, but like electrical um, checking systems. Yeah. And um, and then I just order. I just like I don't really go through like a really deep process of checking it because if I find a problem, I'll just be like, oh, I mean, all right, I'll time. trash that one PCB design and just order another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's crazy how cheap it is. I know there's like JLC um, just promoted online mm. so much that it it is really cheap, but there's always the shipping yeah. costs. So I'm in the UK here, and like the shipping into yeah. the UK is it's 
easily double, triple the uh, the cost of the PCBs. So I suppose being there, you, you've yeah. got access to it all. Yeah, the, the, the classic turnaround that I have for, so like for basic PCBs, which to be fair is mostly what I've been doing because I haven't been doing anything super crazy. I've been doing basically like testing design things recently. Um, but like if you just have like a double-sided PCB less than maybe like 15 by 15 centimeters, Mm -hmm. uh, the first two that you order in a month will cost you a dollar, including shipping, and they arrive within, so they manufacture them within 24 hours, and then they ship them immediately, so they usually arrive within like 36 hours. And then That's after crazy. the first two, it still only costs 20 RMB, which is like $3.50 US or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, like it, it's usually like $3.50, including shipping, and it'll arrive in less than two days. That is crazy to think about. There's no, there's no point having like... PCB making kit yourself at all, because if it's that cheap, that's crazy. Yeah, I I mean I remember when I lived in Brisbane, I went through the whole sort of like phase of, you know, setting up cupric chloride etching systems yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And I am very glad that I have not done that in years. <laughs> yeah, it's messy and it doesn't always work, and it's just it it. I mean, like the, the problem, like if you spend that much time to get a PCB and then like it doesn't work in the end, that's like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> oh, definitely. I suppose yeah. Being over there, like having access to stuff, doesn't matter at all, does it really? I mean, you've lost yeah. thirty-six hours, as you said. Yeah, and I mean, like, th it doesn't stop at just like electronic stuff as well. So, like, the classic thing is, if you want to get something CNC machine, sorry, CNC machined, um, it's way cheaper to get things here. And like, you can, you, you can like follow the scale down in terms of like how cost, but like, you know, maybe they don't have really good QC processes on their machines and things like that. So you can get like super cheap but you might have problems with your parts, or you can like go up to like really high high scale fancy things as well. And then like for SLA printing, for example, it's like this box just came in yesterday. And so for parts that I don't want to just print on my FDM printer, mm. um, I forget the cost, but it, it, it's very cheap. It's, it's something on the order of like an RMB per um, cubic centimeter or something like that. Something like, I don't know. I, I regularly get SLA parts made and they also deliver within 36 hours in the same, same time frame. So just tons of like prototyping stuff that you would otherwise just like find frustrating or like cost hip prohibitive or takes too long to deliver. It's just a non-issue if you're in you know, Gen Gen area. Yeah, that's crazy. I suppose everything's so compact and condensed around there for manufacturing that it's just, yeah, it, it just blows my mind that it's just like a short time between order and then you get it in your hands. And normally it's a good yeah. few weeks. It's it's fun. It's good. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I... I mean, living in, in Brisbane, which is on a giant island in the middle of nowhere, I am well-versed with the, the issues of time delays from shipping. Hi. So if you were, um, I don't know, starting a new startup now, not not um, a test one, say one building uh, lamps or something, just something like not straightforward, but kind sure. of straightforward, would you move across mm -hmm. to where you are now again, or would you look at different parts of the world? Like it's a big transition. I mean... Shenzhen is definitely still super beneficial for developing and manufacturing products at the moment. Hmm. I mean, if especially if you're doing something fairly sort of like simple and um, you know you're, I guess if, if you're not trying to compete with something commoditized, if you're doing something I guess new-ish, is what I'm saying. It makes tons of sense. The only you know, reason that some people have been moving away from manufacturing in China is obviously because of like tariffs and yeah. things like that. So if you're trying to compete on like cents to some other competitor that's doing something similar. Um, there are just sort of like cost competitive strategies that might make sense to you know, move to other parts of Southeast Asia. Mm. I also love the development process in Shenzhen just because like I was saying, just like the, the iteration cycle loops are so tight that you can just, you know, 
be a lot more free, I guess, and like um, less constrained in the ways that you just like experiment on things and like try out new stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, if, if it was me personally, yeah, I would definitely come here um, to do it because you know you can find places where the cost of living is really cheap if if you want that. Um, you can you know find nicer places if you want that. You can get yeah. connected to developing things really fast and really cheap if that's the you know the aim that you're doing. And if it makes sense to be manufacturing in China afterwards, then like do. During that whole process, you're making connections to people that will ultimately be integral in that process as well. I suppose you're already there, aren't you? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was just going to say, like, it, it's a bit of a, I guess, redundant question for me because, like, I already have all the context here. So if, if I'm building a product, this is where I know how to build a product. But, you know, there's, I'm sure there's, you know, for example, if I went to San Francisco right now, I know a handful of people, but I wouldn't know sort of, like, you know, efficient ways of finding engineers that are not, you know, just prohibitively expensive, for example. <laughs> yeah. That's what it just comes through experience, doesn't it? And who you've met and like contacts that you build up through just projects in the past. Like how long have you been? Oh, yeah, in? totally. Shen's in there, was it four, four years, did you say? No, so it's been like five and a half years now. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I came originally a little bit more five years ago. Aye. But five years worth of the people, I suppose if you'd have set up in san francisco and new york as you were saying that's where you got to accelerator like that mm. that would be where your contacts were i suppose wouldn't it and you'd be a different loop to be in yeah for sure and i mean like it, it depends what you need so i mean like if, if you're a if you're a company that's looking for i guess like chip scale like development engineers or something like that coming to shenzhen and trying to hire people that don't speak the same native language as you to do that it's gonna be really frustrating and suck um, and so it would probably make sense to go somewhere that like you have a connection to people that have that kind of experience. So if if you're developing something in the hardware space and it doesn't require like a specific type of engineer or something like that, Shenzhen's a great place to do it. But I mean, th there are also just like things about living in China that a lot of people like do find it hard to sort of like acclimatize to. So I guess like what one downside is if you're trying to build a team here, convincing people to come live in Shenzhen is not always super easy. Um, but then the thing that I, I see much more commonly, um, which I think makes a lot more sense, uh, because a lot, a lot of the startups that I worked with, the hacks did this, is that they would do sort of like short sprints in, in Shenzhen. So they would be like based in their um, you know, home country or whatever. And usually these companies had access to, to the hacks office, so this made things a little bit easier. But you know, if they had a, a new product um, that they were they had done some development in their home country and they needed to come over and do some final like DFMs, do a whole bunch of like testing and things like that, they would they would come be based here for sort of like two three months or something like. That blast out everything that they needed to do, finish it up, and then head back home and continue work um, from their home office. So it's like a good push kind of process, then. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm saying is like you don't need to live in Shenzhen to, to get a lot of the benefits of Shenzhen, in particular if, if your development process is you know not completely continual. Yeah. So I mean, like hacks, it makes sense to be based here because we're here as each company comes through and like spends that portion of the development cycle here. But if you're that individual company, like you don't have to be based here continually. You can. Yeah, just use it as a landing ground. Yeah, I see, I see. But when you came across, then you didn't have an eye on hacks as like a support for yourself as your company when you came over. So like, what, what was your plan there? So, I mean, we, I, I honestly, I can't remember exactly the specifics of this because it was quite a long time ago now. Um, but we, th th there was some negotiation, some negotiation that we actually did have with hacks before we came over. Um, but I actually just wasn't really mainly part of it because it was the, so two, two of the co-founders that kind of like made the decisions and I was just doing design engineering because that's what I like doing at the time. And um, but there, there was something to do with like at the time, um, 
I, I think it's because we'd had some other investment offers. And it's like the investment sort of like scheme that Hacks wanted to offer to our company at the time was something that my co-founders would prefer not to do. Honestly, I, I mean, I think the company died. So like long story short, we made a lot of poor decisions. So I'm not by any means saying that that was the correct decision to make. Right, and right, in right. particular, actually, there was this company that was, um, it, it was a competitor to us. It did something fairly similar, but just used a different type of technology, uh, which is called Volterra. And so they just kind of like, um, they an extruder. Know? Yeah, so they are. I, I don't really know how big they've grown. I think they, they haven't sort of like been you know, massively expanding or anything like that, but they're still operating and they're obviously like, you know, alive. So in comparison to a company that's been dead for, you know, four and a half years, definitely yeah, uh, <laughs> large life better. And so, and sorry, and that company um, went through hacks. Um, so, you know, I, I guess it's, th there are some questions that you need to have in terms of like, you know, what you would want out of an accelerator program um, before you go into it. But I, I think that a lot of the things that good accelerators offer um, is sometimes I mean, they'll sell you on it. Like, you get this explanation if you would like start going through one of those programs. Um, but it's sometimes it's difficult as a startup, I guess, to really determine the value cost of the services they provide. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of times there are some companies, like probably my co-founders at the time, that didn't value it highly enough. And so they thought that the deal that they were getting wasn't super good, but honestly, it was probably uh, by far the best decision they could have made. <laughs> So did they take? Did they did they take out of it like from your co well the co-founder's point of view? Like, did do you have to pay in to be, like to be able to use a resource? Oh, no, no. So, so so what 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 hacks does is they they actually give you cash um, and then they provide you with services, which is like access to the office and access to a bunch of engineers and a bunch of other connections and stuff that we have, um, and then they take a percentage of equity from your company. Right, the And so, yeah, and so I mean, that, that, that's the thing that, that you give up, obviously. Yeah, all right, okay. I just didn't know whether you had to pay like a, a significant portion in and that's what put them off or whatever, because when you're first starting out, it's usually yeah, money is the important thing, isn't it? Well, the important yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But I mean, like, th th there are also, you know, some startups that will not understand the investment process and go through other sort of like, you know, like maybe they'll go through like several accelerator processes they'll take like tons of money from lots of angel investors. So I, I have seen some startups that, you know, don't consider the future of their equity and then shoot themselves in the foot really badly because of it. So like I knew this one guy, for example, that ended up building this really successful company and owned a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of it in the end, which is just really sad for him. So, yeah. you know, That's I mean, you have to, you have to consider it for a certain amount, but, but definitely it's, um, if, if you can get cash and you can get help, for people that can speed up your process, that's by far the most valuable thing when you're an early startup. Hi, that's okay. So let's um, talk. So when you were, so when did you go to university? Start, start from there. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I studied in the University of Queensland, um, which is in Brisbane, which is the, the town that I, I mostly uh, grew up in. Right. It's, um, I guess it, it's, it's not, it, it, it like ranks fairly okay in kind of like the international standards, but honestly it was mainly just, you know, one of the best, well, it was the best engineering university that was nearby where my parents lived when I was living at home at the time. So oh. that's pretty much what made the decision for me. Um, but I mean, like, it, there are, so for example, in Australia, there's like, um, there's a couple of universities in Sydney um, mm. that you, you could definitely argue um, would be a better place to go. Uh, but I guess, like, you know, it, it ranks pretty high up there. Um, and I definitely enjoyed a whole bunch of the coursework that I did, mainly because at the time, Mechatronics was a pretty new. Um, like speciality um, that you could pick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was the thing that I liked about it was that 
they had a bunch of design project courses, which essentially just forced you to put into practice a whole bunch of stuff that you've learned and make these generally just like robotic systems to fulfill some kind of like stupid made up requirements. I mean, classic like micro mouse competition style stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that was super fun and is definitely the place that I learned the most um, about what, you know, Sorry, there's a vacuum cleaner. My roommate's cleaning up. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so like by far, like the things that I learned most were during um, project courses, um, project which courses. were mainly only made available in mechatronics at the time, just because it was a new course that they didn't have a whole bunch of like specialized you know classes for, and so they they figured quite rightly, I think, in my perspective, that actually just going through and implementing the stuff was the best way to learn. So. That's, that's what I loved about learning. But yeah, long story short, mechatronics engineering at the University of Queensland. Um, it's the, the one benefit is it's a super beautiful campus as well. Um, because it's like Brisbane, I mean, Queensland in general is just like a really nice place. It's got like really good weather. And like the, the university campus has like a lake. Um, and it's just like really spread out. And it was, it was really cool four years of my life. <laughs> no, sounds cool. I've never been to Australia, but like if you see photos of stuff like around Queensland, it looks it's a pretty looking place. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely summer that I, I love to go back to for Christmas every year, oh, which in Australia is summer. But yeah, <laughs> backwards. <laughs> yeah. So was the stuff that you did um, in uni then helpful? Have you found? So I know I used to need to have the basic knowledge of engineering, but because that yeah. been helpful. So so I guess I coming back to pretty much what I said before. Definitely all of the like fundamental things that I learned during university. Mm-hmm didn't necessarily become immediately useful in some situations. But the benefit of like doing mechatronics was that you touched on everything at least a little bit. And then through the sort of like application of these design projects, you chose where you would really want to dive in and learn really deep sort of understandings as well as like practical implementations of them. So I guess the fundamental stuff, yeah, you definitely end up using chunks of it, but there are also huge chunks that I've never used. Um, for example, it's so like material science engineering. I've like dabbled in like, you know, interesting things just through doing work for, for hacks teams, for example. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the really in-depth stuff I've, I've never used. But if I was doing some slightly different project, it would, like I have seen some startup companies come through hacks where like material science is the like fundamental well, um, driving force behind the company. Yeah. But so I, mean, I think ultimately the things that were definitely the most useful for me were just practical project work. And so in the context of my, my university studies, that was these mechatronic specific design projects. And so it, it would literally just be like, um, I guess one example of a pretty fun one was our professor still like designed up this like water tank that was kind of like four by five meters or something like that. Hmm. And he, he, I mean, he was, he was a bit of a geek. So he, he's done a bunch <laughs> of like really stupid things to like constrain the problem. But the idea was um, he set up a bunch of these like fans that would blow over the, the surface of the, um, the water and it was it was meant to be like a sort of like uh, was like colonial exploration kind of like themed thing. So the idea was you had to have some kind of like wind powered sailing device that would go onto this like water thing, and I have to like land in specific coastlines on the opposite side. And then the only way that you could navigate was he like set up this constellation of LEDs to be like you know, as as stars Stop, yeah. that you could have TV systems to like navigate yourself by. And so like through through just doing that, I like. I mean, we, for example, I that was like when I bought a 3D printer because this was like you know seven eight years ago or something like that. Yeah. And um, when it was just like kind of like novel and interesting, and like I set up you know like a, a vacuum forming system and like I bought a laser cutter like you know the previous year and just like 
made all this stuff and then you know learned about at the time it was some like SBC called like QB board or something like that. And so really got to like practically implement a whole bunch of like Linux stuff that we learned and a whole bunch of other things. And then like, you know, practical problems with like CV systems. So like you would have all the like you would normally have in like a class that you did CV problems on, you would have some kind of like data training sets or whatever that you would know you would have to account for you know, realistic problems. But then actually having to build a robot that dealt with those things in the real world, and like if it didn't work, I guess like your grade failed, I suppose, um, was just super, super useful as opposed to just being like, oh, here's like a bunch of strategies that you might have to use, like, you know, once you get a real job. It's just like pick one and use it because you need to use one. Yeah, yeah, you gotta succeed with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's unusual. Like, I've not heard of any projects. You know, I don't know a huge amount of universities, but all the projects that I've seen and worked on have been like, considerably different to that. It's been you got to produce something as a team, and it's more focused on the teamwork than it is um, on like oh, yeah. the end goal. So, so to be fair, all of these projects were team projects as well. So like, oh, okay. that one I just described for other people on my team. Because I mean, especially for you know, I, th I think we were in third year engineering at that point. So it was like, because there was a whole bunch of extra complexities. Long story short, it was actually a really difficult course. Um, but it was super fun and we all really enjoyed it. So yeah. No, I, kind of problem, I, guess. I don't know any engineers that have graduated have gone, oh, that was easy. <laughs> the yeah, line true. Did. <laughs> so did you do anything? So you, you went straight from uni into um, a startup, as you said. Um, did you hmm. do anything in part? I'm guessing you were fairly engrossed in your degree there. Um, were you doing things part-time trying to network? locally to home or so the the one thing that i did do is um luckily i had a connection um through someone that actually used to work for my dad a very long time ago had set up a sorry word it was kind of like an electronics development lab in brisbane and so it was it was a place that like did electronics design and like firmware design and things like that but also did small scale manufacturing right um, like, was, like bespoke products. uh no so it, it was like very much like business oriented. So like oh, okay. they, um, like the, a client would come in and say like, I have this like new project for like this you know, thing that I'm making. Um, I guess like, what was, what was one of the examples? Okay, yeah, so at one stage I had this like um, university research group that was trying to make this device where they could track how often people were sitting down versus standing up or they're working at their desks. And it was just some kind of like physiological economic study thing. Right. And so they contracted just to this company to be like, hey, we need you to design this like sensor-based thing that will like, you know, log data to people's computers and have this like sensor that goes in their office seat or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they just like went through the process of like designing it, they like wrote all the firmware and then they manufactured it in-house and then like delivered it. So, um, because yeah, I mean, in Australia, there's not a lot of, like it's difficult to find a company that will like fully take over an engineering hardware pro project like that. Um, so they had like a pretty nice new space where they had a like, quite a, like often more customers than they could handle, I think. And that was just like slowly expanding over time to encompass them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, long story short, so I, I worked with them for a little while, um, doing a little bit of everything, to be honest. Um, so like I did some PCB design with them. I did a lot of firmware and like some C++ um, mm. like application design things. And then they would like, you know, get me to just like do interny style things with setting up their, um, you know, pick and place machines and yeah, you know, yeah. doing, you know, PCB assembly, like with like semi-automated, um, uh, devices and stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was it was super great. And to be honest, like the main reason that I first took that on is that in Australia you have to have. I think it's it's probably changed now, but at the time it was like sixty um, full time days of like work under an accredited engineer before you could graduate. Oh wow! Okay. And so 
you just, yeah, you just like had to do it. So that, that was the main reason that I found the job. Um, but yeah, it, it turned out to be really good. And I kind of just did like, I did like eight hours of work a week or something. It was like nothing super intense because yeah. you know, I was studying at the same time. So it was pretty crazy. But yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was, I, I would definitely recommend for anyone. Well, I mean, it's hard to say, cause it really just depends like how crazy you are with your studies and what kind of access you have to the kind of companies around. But I, I personally found for myself that doing that during my studies was extremely useful and kind of like, again, just getting a perspective of like how the things that I'm learning are practically applied and you know, what things actually give value and what things don't. So it just let me to focus more in on the things that I thought made sense. Yeah, which really interesting that the degree made you do 60 hours. Was it 60 hours, did you say, or 60 days? 60, oh, 60 days. days, yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. But anyway, 60 days of um, work under an accredited engineer, that's like, I feel that's, that should be something that's kind of enforced everywhere, really, because you could graduate. I, mean, I actually kind of thought it was pretty standard across most places by now, but I guess maybe not. It no, is, it's definitely a really good idea. Yeah. It definitely, definitely is, yeah. Because um, you could graduate but, having not done any practical work, really, which yeah. is crazy. But, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's why they put it in place, in, in particular, in our university, too, because so the University of Queensland, like it had one, you know, I guess like rival university in Queensland, which was, um, oh God, QUT, Queensland University of Technology. And um, the, the, the kind of like stereotypical argument between the two of them was that, um, UQ, the one that I went to, was too theoretical based and wasn't like practical enough. And right. so I think part of the just like Push their method of trying to tackle that issue was, was to, go, to go through this, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, the other thing I was going to say though was that it, it definitely did have a sort of like flip side issue to it, which was, I mean, depending on who you are, could have been good or bad. Um, but so, for example, when our, our startup was um, just starting, we had like we knew a whole bunch of people from. The university that we went to as well as a couple of the other like local universities that had similar requirements hmm. and the market was just so flooded with engineers at the time that people couldn't find like internships to work for free to like satisfy these requirements yeah. and so we had like a bunch of people come to us and they were like hey like you guys are accredited now and we're like yeah and they're like and you have a company and we're like yeah and they're like can we come do intern stuff for free and we're like all right like <laughs> if, if that'll help you it'll help us um so we, we had like a, a few um, interns kind of like come through and just like help us out with um I mean, sometimes they do interesting stuff but like honestly sometimes we just like didn't have things that we could give them and we we're like hey like help us like do it like organize our stock for our parts or like help us do some assembly of components or something like that um, which is like i mean it would have been much nicer if there was a system so they could get you know paid good money Actual, for yeah yeah experience but, i mean you know given the constraints everyone was happy so I think at least we weren't exploiting them, but it wasn't necessarily a perfect system. <laughs> yeah, well, they got what they needed. They got the time that they needed, I suppose, and you had an extra person about that was yeah. similar knowledge levels to you guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, given given the system, everyone won. But um, I guess I'm saying is that, yeah, this, it still puts situations like that, which you know, someone should be making money while they do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems a bit unfair, but I suppose it's this, this, the system. I. And internships are a weird thing, especially because like in, in Australia, it's generally not a common thing like it is in the States. I don't really know what it's like in the UK, but like unpaid internships is not really a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange how it's different across the world, though, isn't it? Like you'd think that having experience would be really useful. Like what do you think? Do you think that it's useful or do you think it's good that people come away? Oh, I mean, like do, doing jobs that provide you with experience, I think is definitely essential to pretty much any job that you're going through. But in particular engineering, yes, it totally makes sense. 
Um, and I think if, if you don't have access to you know, anything that's going to pay you OK, then you should still do something. But it sucks if you can't get paid to, to do that. And you should be able to get paid while you do it at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I guess like it's kind of it's kind of difficult because a lot of people will want to sort of like go for careers in the United States. And if you're going for a career in the United States, it also makes sense to like get experience there in like those systems and meet people and you know, get tips yeah. and things like that. But, but they are the place that have kind of normalized the idea of if it's an internship, you don't get paid. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. I mean, I said that, but I'm also a startup. Like, I'm part of a startup right now that has virtually no money. So we may be looking for some interns that we won't be able to pay very much um, in the particular future. So maybe I shouldn't shoot myself in the foot too much. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Then you're at the startup, blah, 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 blah. Um, you're uh, recruiting people. I'm guessing, oh, you're looking to recruit people. Like, what, what sort of things would you be looking for in people that you're recruiting besides the relevant knowledge? So, I mean, to, to be honest, and, and this is maybe not necessarily very useful to anyone that's going to be listening to this, um, but the first people that, that we're looking for is um, we need a couple of just like technicians locally here in Shenzhen mm -hmm. um, to just help out with like, um, you know, assembly and like QC of like some of the fixtures that we're, we're making for people at the moment. Um, so that, that's something that I'm kind of just like looking for locally. And it's mainly where we're waiting for this like grants money to come through um, before we can start doing some of that hiring. Yeah. Um, but that's some of the other stuff that I'm honestly, and again, maybe this isn't, Super, like, I guess if someone's listening to this, they might have gotten to this stage where they're like, hey, Shenzhen's really cool, I'm going to Shenzhen. But the people that we're also looking for is like web development um, stuff. Oh, so okay. I'm kind of getting bogged down with a bunch of um, front-end development that I'm doing at the moment. So I guess if someone is, is really familiar with um, Vue.js, um, what else are we using? We're using with like Vuex, and I'm doing all the sort of like, um, most of the component stuff is just all like Vuetify. Uh, that kind of stuff. If someone is very interested in doing some work on like on their test fixture infrastructure, manufacturing things, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's largely um, uh, like top end stuff. Then really, like you're not you're looking at people with specific knowledge for the tasks that you need them to do now, and that's pretty much it. So if two people came to you, right, right now, just because I mean, like we haven't really gotten to a stage where we we have the cash to expand properly. So I mean, like. Hopefully, if things all go well in the near future, we will still be looking for like electronics engineers to do a bunch of like development on modules and like firmware engineers to write a whole bunch of the standard modules that will then like go into our system. Mm. Um, but right now, yeah, we're, we're taking it one step at a time. We can't really sort of like take a bite bigger than we can chew off by hiring on some people and then not being able to you know, keep them on six months later. No, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um... Hopefully. So someday soon, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it's just a slow game. Um, so if we if we move on to these um, quick four trivia questions. Just yeah, to, yeah, sure. Um, so we start with, what's the greatest lesson that you've ever learned? Oh, God, I remember I, was, I saw, saw these questions and I thought of an answer, and now I can't think of it again. <laughs> but I guess um, I, I, one really important thing about it, I guess, is I guess this is more specific to startups, mm -hmm. um, but picking the people that you work with um, in particular, if you're like you know, an early stage hardware startup, is almost more important than anything else that you do. So I, I do know, for example, some people that um, you know would get connected to a co-founder because they, I don't know, just like got a recommendation from someone else, or they, they like thought that they had a set of skill sets that would be very useful, or something like that. Mm. And by far the most likely um, cause that I have seen with like the startups I've interacted with as a reason that they would fail is co-founder breakdown. And I mean, like even in the, the original um, 
uh, company that I worked at, Co, we, we ended up like being pretty okay, but it was a constant source of tension. And in that case, we all still got along really well. And so for example, after like, like years after it split up, all of us are still friends. But immediately after I left, I was not friends with like one or two of the people there. So you got to repair all of Well, I mean, like to be honest, it was kind of just we needed to get some perspective again. It was just like, you know, a year or two later, I think one of us messaged the other and we're just like, hey, how's things going? And then like we're instantly, you know, really good friends again. But um, it's, I mean, it's, it's just stressful environments. Um, and so like even like working with friends is, is not always necessarily the best decision. I, I guess it's just choosing the people that you work with. And I don't have like a catch-all method of how to do this, but being able to choose them to, to work with people effectively is definitely like top two kind of like things that you'll need to have set up to have a, a successful company. But yeah, it's just, it's difficult. Don't underestimate it, I suppose. Okay. okay. No, I suppose it's the, what can drag you down because you're around them people all the time, aren't you? You clash with them. And... Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately, you're going to have things that go wrong. Like, if you're a small company, just like things are constantly going to go wrong. There's going to be like, you know, remunerations of some case in some way or another, whether it's like, you know, someone taking credit for something or someone like, you know, so like, for example, it was like a complication when I first moved to Shenzhen and the rest of my company moved to New York. One thing was that, like, obviously, the rent in New York was significantly more expensive than Shenzhen. And we were only paying like cost of like you know, living at the time. And so there was like a bit of a sort of like thing where I was like, wait, you guys are spending how much on rent? And here I am like specifically living in like a crappy little apartment. Like, can I not just go to like a nicer apartment? And everyone's like, oh, but like, you know, just like little things like that. Because like you're going to be pushing everything to the edge to, to stay alive, at least at some point. Yeah. And so having people that you can have really good communication with is very important. Yeah, no, I'll go with that. Um, okay, what do you prefer? Low-level or high-level programming? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. I did think about this one a decent amount. So I, I think in university, I definitely really enjoyed low-level programming a lot more. Um, just because, to, to be honest, it, it's mainly just my kind of like sadistic requirement or like my, my, my love of like succeeding in something that's challenging. So I honestly think like the reason that I enjoyed low-level programming at least is that, you know, getting that blinking LED or like getting like one over the air sort of like, um, you know, update to work or something like that just gives you so much more satisfaction because it yeah. took so much bloody effort out of your life to get there. <laughs> um, and, and so like, yeah, so for a while, I kind of quite liked that because it was, you know, it, it, was, it was something that not everyone could do. And mm -hmm. so it, it also then becomes like a much more valuable um, tool in terms of, um, you know, making yourself marketable to all kinds of different situations as well. Because people that do high level programming like Diamond Dozen, you can learn like, everyone learns Python online if they have like any vague interest in anything engineering. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I, I, if, if I had to pick like which one, I mean, for example, which one do I do more of right now is all high level stuff. And it's just because like the obvious benefit of high level programming is that you can just get a whole bunch more feature sets made a lot more quickly. Yeah. And so for example, a whole bunch of the backend stuff that I'm writing for the like Linefox system for automatic generation of um, test fixtures is at the moment all in Python. And it would be faster and like be more efficient if I'd written it in you know, C++ or even like C or like something like that, but it's just like I would never be able to finish it if I did do that. And it's just you know at, at a certain point like feature sets are so much more important than efficiency and other things like that. That JavaScript, Python, like I guess even like Perl and other things like that just don't. You may not get the. Yeah, maybe you don't get the same sort of like level of achievement in each thing that you do, but you get so many more things done. 
And so like coming out with like a final product, it's like in the order of magnitude easier. And I mean, you know, that is the fundamental difference between the two. So I guess final answer, high level programming for now, but uh, I also have a bit of a fetish for low level programming when it comes down to it. <laughs> well, fair enough. Low level's um, personally more fun. I agree with you. But yeah, your high level yeah. stuff, you can just get things done easier and faster and just, yeah, much more productive. Yeah, that's definitely it. Um, so oh. what advice would you have for 20 year old you if you could speak to them now? Oh, okay. What was I doing when I was 20? So it would have been just like, that, that probably would have been, oh yeah, that, that was like a couple of years. No, I would have still been in university. So that would have been, yeah, when I was still studying. Um, God, I guess at that point, yeah, it would have been focus less on your grades and focus more on just like doing actual projects of one sort or another. I mean, I, so I definitely put far too much um, importance on my grades and I, I was, I was really dumb in a lot of ways that I sort of just like planned out my, um, sort of like graduation pathway in that I, I had really good grades when I was at university and I worked like way too hard to get them. Um, and so like, I, I wasn't quite a level where I got like a university medal, but I think I was like two points like below the guy that did or something. And, um, I kind of just presumed that like you burn yourself really hard, you get really good grades and then like the good opportunities will come to me. And like, if I'm the best of the best in those kind of perspectives, I don't need to stress about like, you know, networking and like doing all that, you know, esoteric that your know, engineers don't really like doing. Yeah. And, um, obviously that didn't happen. And like, I say that obviously, because in, in retrospect and just like getting a bit of perspective on like actually looking at it from the outside, like obviously that wasn't never going to be the case, but I kind of just like blindly went through and being like, no, 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 the most important thing is just my grades and like everything else will sort itself out, even though I didn't properly think it through. Yeah. And that is definitely not the way to go. So I guess just like if, if you're studying and like, you're really concerned about like getting good grades and that like comes up against doing a really interesting project or like going to a different country to like, um, work with a company or like do some study somewhere else and something like that. And you're like concerned that it's going to impact your grades, like screw your grades. They are barely important for your first job. And then after your first job, nobody cares even in the slightest, like by far everything else that you do is going to impact your whole life as well as your career much, much more significant. Okay. So yeah, I guess 20 year old me stop. I mean like, don't not, I'm not necessarily saying like work less. I'm just saying like, don't focus on the shit that doesn't, give you anything which is great yeah. <laughs> do you think it's a message that you got through university to get good grades or do you think that was just a mindset that you just have so i mean like well it's kind of interesting because i guess as a good example from it, it depends what you want to do afterwards so when i was in high school i or even better when i was in primary school my my family's like not poor but they're not particularly well off like i mean yeah they're doing fine. Long story short, my parents wanted me to go to a nice private school in Queensland, in Brisbane, mm -hmm. and parents couldn't afford to both send me and my brother to like a nice school. So my mom like trained us essentially on the scholarship entrance exams for a handful of um, high schools in our area, and then like we did, we were encouraged to get very good grades at high school, and then in the end, both me and my brother got scholarships um, to go to go to the high school they went to, which is like a fairly nice private school, but that really makes much of a difference, honestly. Um, but then during high school as well, I just like worked way too hard and I got sort of like, um, like ducks of the school. And the, the benefit of doing that was that then that then led me to getting a scholarship in university, which means I didn't have to pay for university. And that is a direct like result of like, yeah, it made sense from like, even like a sort of third perspective to work hard like that in high school. Yeah. But I guess just like, once you get into university, like 
if you're going, for example, for a particular <clears throat> like grant to work for like a mining company, which is like a classic thing that happened in my university, um, then yeah, being like the top grade like um, opens those doors. Score up. Yeah, opens those kinds of doors. It's like you can get into those kinds of things. And so like there are some perspectives, I guess, that like it does make sense to like your grades do matter. But I mean, if you're not already at the top, then it's not going to matter. Essentially, like unfortunately, because it's just like you know some of those like really interesting um, experiences maybe on the people at the top. And even if you are like near the top, I just don't think that those opportunities are necessarily worthwhile because like you're gonna burn yourself out trying to achieve it. Whereas you could probably get to exactly the same point that someone that goes through that system, plus maybe like three months or something like that by just doing other things more effectively. Yeah. So I, I so I, I guess the reason I was saying that is that yeah, there was definitely like a push from several different perspectives to like you know push your grades up as high as possible, and also like when you're in university, you're interacting mostly with professors, and professors are people that did very well in university, and then decided to pursue academia. So naturally, they're going to be the people that are predisposed to thinking that good grades are a better option. I just suppose it's the uh, the experience of being out looking for work, which decides it for you, isn't it? And if you've not been out looking for work, yeah. which most uni students won't have been, then you, you don't have that. But even like, not even necessarily looking out for work. Like even just like do projects of your own. Just like even if you don't intend to, you know, make a business out of it. Just like find an open source, you know, software project online you find interesting and like start contributing to it. Or like just, you know, find I don't know like a robotics club that's like making like self-driving cars and just like make some stuff. It's like interesting things that will like teach you stuff and you can like jam into your resume and you can get like you know, contacts to like put as references on your resume. Like those things are just like so much more important. And like generally what you'll find is that like through those other things that you do, you'll find someone that's like, hey, actually we need like, you know, a graduate engineers to like do a job somewhere else. And that, that's how you end up getting good jobs. Like by nature of having a grade that is just like the tiniest portion of getting into some jobs, but like it has nothing to do with finding them, with like getting a good relationship with the people that do it, with like having practical experience. So that like once you go into an interview, people actually like you and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so it's only a small piece of a fairly yeah. big, yeah. All right, um, on this last one, I just figured that it's because you've, well, because you oh, work yeah. and what you're working, it's, um, you know, you, you might have a different perspective to anyone else that orders things from online, really. Um, What's your yeah. favorite electronics component? So I, I was thinking about this question as well, and I have like a handful of answers, which I mean, it, it depends on like, I, I think you might be disappointed with my answers because the ones that I generally find the most fun are just like things that you um, didn't expect to exist in sort of like, like for example, I'm like a mechanical component that you can like solder on. So like I recently discovered, um, I mean, here I say this. But it's a pretty obvious thing to most people. But it's like solder on nuts, so like SMT nuts that you can um, put into boards. This is something I never really used before. Hmm. Oh, I'm gonna go through some of my courses to find it. Um, and it's just it made like mounting of a whole bunch of my projects far easier. I got this um, little like solenoid module, which is like a a module that I've been um, putting together for. Actually, pulled off one of the chips. This is gonna look dumb on the camera, but it's, it's just like a module that um, controls a solenoid and it does things, it's got a solenoid driver chip on it, which gives like a, a large inrush current when you activate it to get the pull-in current and then draws it back to give you a lower current. And then does things like error faulting and things like that. And like you need to mechanically mount it, well, I need to mechanically mount it into the fixtures that I'm making to like 
automatically press buttons or like actuate magnets to like um, interact with um, holotex sensors and stuff like that. Right. And so just like having these like solder on um, like nuts on it was just like super useful. But then I guess the other thing that I, I, I did with this one that was really fun, and it was just like, I guess like a non-standard method of um, using some components, um, which helped me a whole bunch and just made my life a whole bunch easier, is that I could use a, um, a whole effect sensor style thing to like, long story short, one of the things I wanted to do is validate that it was actually engaging so that I could do like self-error checking on the test fixtures because the whole idea is they have to be like ultimately reliable. Yeah. And so knowing whether or not the solenoid plunger actually um, engaged was just necessary uh, for what I wanted to do. And um, I was originally looking at like making this mounting thing to put like a, a magnet onto the solenoid, but then it got kind of like frustrating because the solenoid shaft can rotate. And so depending on like the mechanical mounting method you can have for the whole effect sensor, the like flux angle of the magnet didn't necessarily line up in any nice mounting method. Yeah. And so in the end, I just happened to find this IR brake sensor where the, the distance of the, um, like the mechanical mounting method that it has sits right where the plunger of the solenoid goes. But the idea is that it breaks the, the IR brake sensor when it's um, not engaged, and then when it engages, oh. it moves past it. Okay, so it's, and so it's just like, it's, it's obviously, yeah, it's just like a sort of like mechanical just like quirk that it happens to be perfect for the, the size of solenoid that it used. So I mean, and I guess like another example of something that I really enjoyed is some of the, the dumb side perks that I work on, as I guess a lot of silly electronics engineers do, is making keyboards. And um, I found this, and I, I think it, it's maybe common knowledge in the like keyboard community, but like these um, kale switch sockets. And so like the whole idea is that like people that, that get really into keyboards, you can get different types of key. Um, yeah, like cherry uh, switches. And... Like, like the, exactly. And so people will like to be able to swap out the types of switches, but if you solder it in, you can't do that. Yeah. And so kale, um, which is actually based in Shenzhen or Guangdong at least, they have like sockets where you can like plug in the, the key switch, but then you can like pull it out and swap it for a different one. And so I made a handful of um, PCBs that have those, although they're actually not here. Right, um, right. And then the other fun thing that I found for it as well was a um, reverse mounted like through PCB SK16822, whatever it is. So one of those like serial controlled LEDs, um, but like it, it mounts flipped upside down. So I like made these PCBs where they were like perfectly reversible, which a lot of these like one-sided PCBs do make. But then I also had the socket and the like RGB LED inside of it as well. And like fitting them all in required to have these like weird mechanical um, sort of like requirements on the flip mounted LED, for example. And so I just happened to eventually find one from this like random tiny little manufacturer somewhere in China. And uh, yeah, so I guess like the stuff that I really enjoy is I guess just like weird quirky mechanical things that just um, well, you make, make a life a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I, don't, I mean, to, to be honest, I mean, like, if, if it wasn't that, it would probably just be like NR52, because I do like tons of stuff with that. But I feel like that's too generic of an answer. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, so you're going to go with bolts instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in, in relation to, to PCB design, I guess it's a little bit more unique. <laughs> yeah, fair dues for thinking about the stuff that no one else is thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I do end up looking into some just like weird stuff, uh, incorporations of. Um, I guess things in, into into test jigs now, because I've started just like getting into it. It's it, it's kind of weird that like now getting into this, just like the connection methods or like the like the stability of the way that you can plug in a certain thing becomes much more important. So I guess just like a classic example is that finding a speaker element, which is like similar to a pair of ear earphone speakers or something like that, 
but then having it PCB mounted so that I can reliably have it just like placed into like an assembly process or whatever, right. rather than just having like pads you have to like jump the wires to. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's like, it's like that is a real pain in the ass for me if I can't find it. So like, you know, for example, I, I had this one test picture that I had deployed in this company that's making uh, headphones. Mm. And just like once every couple of weeks, I'd have to go and just like service it a little bit because the connections to this um, speaker were just getting like, Twisted just enough to, to start screwing with the signals going through it. So I eventually found one of those PCB mounted and solved that problem for me. <laughs> Probably saved me like a week of my life. <laughs> just finding very specific odd hardware though, isn't it? One one skill that I very quickly developed after I came to China, because I mean, at least for an engineer, it is by far one of the most useful and like art-based kind of things that I've done hmm. is finding Chinese keywords for things that I'm searching for in like online Chinese stores because like finding keywords in like your native language can still sometimes get like really confusing yeah. and then like finding the correct translation that's like it's, it's not even necessarily like the official or like formal translation but like the colloquial term that people use for stuff oh my god it's sometimes very painful but in the same way also very satisfying when you end up finding that like one thing that's what you want yeah what's a puzzle <laughs> in a foreign language <laughs> In fact, I actually ended up, I mean, this this does the really basic stuff, but because of that problem, I wrote this like um, Google Chrome extension where you just like type in some, like you type in keywords in English and it auto-translate auto it using Baidu Translate and then automatically searches for it at Taobao, which is like, kind of like the equivalent of Amazon in China. So uh, <laughs> it was it was enough of a common problem that I started writing tools to fix it. <laughs> no, that's cool though. That shows you're an engineer. Like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you don't if you don't make tools to make systems to make your life easier, I don't think you're engineering properly. <laughs> oh man, I. Um, and what is the uh, biggest piece of advice that you would well you would give to younger engineers? Um, I guess like it depends what what part of the, the life they're in. It I mean it's it's difficult to give like a solid piece of advice that you can universally use. So I like I suppose I stand by my statement before that just like. Don't worry too much about your grades. Worry more about like other like project-based things. You actually get experience in, in doing things, even if it's not necessarily work-based. Yeah. Um, but I guess like I, I get like a lot of people asking me the question, which is like, should I start a startup or should I get a job with a big corporate company or something like that? And it, it's a difficult question to answer. A, a good example is I I'm quite happy and I enjoy a lot what I do and I think that like my, my place in Shenzhen is like quite fun and a lot of people like find that quite interesting. But I have friends of mine that stayed in Australia, chose to, like, even though they studied mechatronics, they went into software instead. Mm -hmm. And their salaries are easily more than twice mine. And they have, like, bought houses and have, like, savings and things like that. So, I mean, like, it, it really depends what you want out of your life as to whether or not, you know, one of those or the other is, is a good choice. Mm -hmm. I, I do think, though, if you are interested in starting a startup, but you do want that lifestyle where you eventually... Are like you know, set up for yourself. And you're like really comfortable, and you have like yeah, good ways and things like that. It's it's not a good method to do it. I think if you want to eventually do your own thing, but still be very to like successful and possibly wealthy, work in strategic corporations until you have a significant amount of experience and a bunch of stuff that you can put on your personal resume and then by extension your company's resume, so that it's much easier to get funding at the yeah. right times. So like from a practical perspective, but then also from like an image perspective from like getting funding and things like that. Um, 
all of the startups that I've seen with people that are in like their forties um, that are running them, A, are like so much more likely to be successful. Um, but then B, they find it much more easy to like get funding and get people to trust them and things like that for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, the, the only difficult thing about it, and like this is the, the only, I guess like caveat to that sort of like general plan, is that if you already have a comfortable job and you make a decent amount of money and like maybe at that point have a family to support and things like that, doing a startup then is hard. Yeah, you got to give up. So I mean, like, I, yeah, and I mean, like, I I knew, for example, this one guy that was trying to start a startup, and I was like interviewing him for entering into the hacks program, hmm. and he wanted to pull out a wage while he was like running a startup, which was like much larger than any wage that I've ever had at like a stable job, and I was like, I just don't think that's possible for you to like do for at least a year and a half or something like that. And he's like, yeah, but I have, you know three kids, a wife, and like, you know, they live in like a fairly expensive part of the world, whatever. And yeah, it was just, in the end, I think he ended up still working part-time. Like he, he did his, um, his startup and he might be transitioning out of it now. But yeah, it, it was just very, very difficult for him to be able to, to do that. So you got to so, weigh up yeah. what you need and what you want and then go from there really, rather than just do it because, because it seems like a fun thing yeah. to do. Yeah. But I guess like the important piece of advice, I guess that a lot of people don't get told because a lot of just like, I guess, machinations that encourage people to get into startups, mm. the, the most likely outcome is that, especially if it's your first startup, it will fail. Yeah. And so you have to be extremely comfortable with the outcome that you may be two years in the future or maybe even like three years in the future or something like that. And you come out with nothing but experience. If you're experience. not happy with that being a strong possibility, then don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not secure at all, though, is it? But it's it's something different to do rather than going into a big company and getting stuck somewhere or working for projects that you don't have much yeah. say over, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I think another thing that some, some people don't really consider as an option is that they, they think, I, I want to do something myself. Like, I want to, you know, quote unquote, be my own boss or whatever it is. Um, and so they think that naturally the only way of doing that is to build a venture capital funded company. And so like you have to build this company that like grows really fast and hires a whole bunch of people really quickly and then becomes Facebook or something like that. Um, but it, it's a completely viable option to have like a sustainable small business that you either do as your main um, job or even if you just do it as like your hobby and like part time. So like hmm. as an example, my girlfriend, you know, does does work for her job but she has a whole bunch of spare time and so she does a handful of side gigs that she, she enjoys quite a lot and they're not you know by any means her like main source of income but if that's the thing that you crave is just like being able to do that you don't have to go build like a unicorn uh, company you yeah. can also do things in small chunks or sustainable small chunks oh, that's it that's it well thank you very much for coming on to all electrocast it's massively appreciated um i'll speak sure, to you man. soon Bye. Thank you very much, Javier, man. Hope we'll chat to you again soon. Bye. Bye.